Section 1 of Mary Schweidler, The Amber Witch. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Mary Schweidler, The Amber Witch, by Wilhelm Meinhold. Translated by Lucy Duff Gordon. Preface and Introduction in laying before the public this deeply affecting and romantic trial, which I have not without reason called on the title-page the most interesting of all trials for witchcraft ever known, I will first give some account of the history of the manuscript. At Kossero, in the island of Usedom, my former curé, the same which was held by our worthy author some two hundred years ago, there existed under a seat in the choir of the church a sort of niche nearly on a level with the floor. I had, indeed, often seen a heap of various writings in this recess. But, owing to my short sight and the darkness of the place, I had taken them for antiquated hymn-books, which were lying about in great numbers. But one day, while I was teaching in the church, I looked for a paper-mark in the catechism of one of the boys, which I could not immediately find, and my old sexton, who was past eighty, and who, although called Appleman, was thoroughly unlike his namesake in our story, being a very worthy, although a most ignorant man, stooped down to the said niche, and took from it a folio volume which I had never before observed, out of which he, without the slightest hesitation, tore a strip of paper suited to my purpose, and reached it to me. I immediately seized upon the book, and, after a few minutes' perusal, I know not which was greater, my astonishment or my vexation at this costly prize. The manuscript, which was bound in vellum, was not only defective both at the beginning and at the end, but several leaves had even been torn out here and there in the middle. I scolded the old man, as I had never done during the whole course of my life. But he excused himself, saying that one of my predecessors had given him the manuscript for waste-paper, as it had lain about there ever since the memory of man, and he had often been in want of paper to twist around the altar-candles, etc. The aged and half-blind pastor had mistaken the folio for old parochial accounts which could be of no more use to anyone. No sooner had I reached home than I fell to work upon my new acquisition and after reading a bit here and there with considerable trouble, my interest was powerfully excited by the contents. I soon felt the necessity of making myself better acquainted with the nature and conduct of these witch-trials, with the proceedings, nay, even with the history of the whole period in which these events occur. But the more I read of these extraordinary stories, the more I was confounded. And neither the trivial beaker, de Welt, the enchanted world, nor the more careful Horst, Zauber Bibliothek, the library of magic, to which, as well as to several other works on the same subject I had flown for information, could resolve my doubts, but rather serve to increase them. Not alone is the demoniacal character, which pervades nearly all these fearful stories, so deeply marked as to fill the attentive reader with feelings of alternate horror and dismay but the eternal and unchangeable laws of human feeling and action are often arrested in a manner so violent and unforeseen, that the understanding is entirely baffled. For instance, 
one of the original trials which a friend of mine, a lawyer, discovered in our province, contains the account of a mother, who, after she had suffered the torture and received the holy sacrament, was on the point of going to the stake, so utterly lost of all maternal feeling, that her conscience obliged her to accuse as a witch her only dearly loved daughter, a girl of fifteen, against whom no one had ever entertained a suspicion, in order, as she said, to save her poor soul. The court, justly amazed at an event which probably has never since been paralleled, caused the state of the mother's mind to be examined both by clergymen and physicians, whose original testimonies are still appended to the records, and are all highly favourable to her soundness of mind. The unfortunate daughter, whose name was Elizabeth Hagel, was actually executed on the strength of her mother's accusation. The explanation commonly received at the present day, that these phenomena were produced by means of animal magnetism, is utterly insufficient. How, for instance, could this account for the deeply demoniacal nature of old Lizzie Colkin as exhibited in the following pages? It is utterly incomprehensible, and perfectly explains why the old pastor, notwithstanding the horrible deceits practiced on him in the person of his daughter, retained as firm a faith in the truth of witchcraft as in that of the gospel. During the earlier centuries of the Middle Ages little was known of witchcraft. The crime of magic, when it did occur, was leniently punished. For instance, the Council of Ancyra, 314, ordained the whole punishment of witches to consist in expulsion from the Christian community. The Visigoths punished them with stripes, and Charlemagne, by advice of his bishops, confined them in prison until such time as they should sincerely repent. It was not until very soon before the Reformation that Innocent VIII lamented that the complaints of universal Christendom against the evil practices of these women had become so general and so loud that the most vigorous measures must be taken against them and towards the end of the year 1489 he caused the notorious Hammer for Witches, Malleus Maleficarum, to be published, according to which proceedings were set on foot with the most fanatical zeal, not only in Catholic, but, strange to say, even in Protestant Christendom, which in other respects abhorred everything belonging to Catholicism. Indeed, the Protestants far outdid the Catholics in cruelty, until, among the latter, the noble-minded Jesuit J. Spee, and among the former, but not until seventy years later, the excellent Tomasius, by degrees put a stop to these horrors. After careful examination into the nature and characteristics of witchcraft, I soon perceived that among all these strange and often romantic stories, not one surpassed my amber witch in lively interest, and I determined to throw her adventures into the form of a romance. Fortunately, however, I was soon convinced that her story was already in itself the most interesting of all romances, and that I should do far better to leave it in its original antiquated form, omitting whatever would be uninteresting to modern readers, or so universally known as to need no repetition. I have therefore attempted, not indeed to supply what is missing at the beginning and end, but to restore those leaves which have been torn out of the middle, imitating, as accurately as I was able, the language and manner of the old biographer, in order that the difference between the original narrative and my own interpolations might not be too evident. This I have done with much trouble, 
and after many ineffectual attempts. But I refrain from pointing out the particular passages which I have supplied, so as not to disturb the historical interest of the greater part of my readers. For modern criticism, which has now attained to a degree of acuteness never before equalled, such a confession would be entirely superfluous, as critics will easily distinguish the passages where Pastor Schweider speaks from those written by Pastor Meinhold. I am, nevertheless, bound to give the public some account of what I have omitted, namely, first, such long prayers as were not very remarkable for Christian unction, second, well-known stories out of the Thirty Years' War, third, signs and wonders in the heavens, which were seen here and there, and which are recorded by other Pomeranian writers of these fearful times, for instance, by Macradius. But when these events formed part of the tale itself, as, for instance, the cross on the Streckelberg, I, of course, allowed them to stand. Fourth, the specification of the whole income of the church at Kosserow, before and during the terrible times of the Thirty Years' War. Fifth, the enumeration of the dwellings left standing, after the devastations made by the enemy in every village throughout the parish. Sixth, the names of the districts to which this or that member of the congregation had emigrated. Seventh, a ground plan and description of the old manse. I have likewise here and there ventured to make a few changes in the language, as my author is not always consistent in the use of his words or in his orthography. The latter I have, however, with very few exceptions retained. And thus I lay before the gracious reader a work glowing with the fire of heaven as well as with that of hell. Meinhold Introduction The origin of our biographer cannot be traced with any degree of certainty, owing to the loss of the first part of his manuscript. It is, however, pretty clear that he was not a Pomeranian, as he says he was in Silesia in his youth, and mentions relations scattered far and wide, not only at Hamburg and Cologne, but even at Antwerp. Above all, his South German language betrays a foreign origin, and he makes use of words which are, I believe, peculiar to Swabia. He must, however, have been living for a long time in Pomerania at the time he wrote, as he even more frequently uses low German expressions, such as occur in contemporary native Pomeranian writers. Since he sprang from an ancient noble family, as he says on several occasions, it is possible that some particulars relating to the Schweiders might be discovered in the family records of the seventeenth century, which would give a clue to his native country. But I have sought for that name and all the sources of information accessible to me in vain, and am led to suspect that our author, like many of his contemporaries, laid aside his nobility and changed his name when he took holy orders. I will not, however, venture on any further conjectures. The manuscript, of which six chapters are missing, begins with the words imperialists plundered, and evidently the previous pages must have contained an account of the breaking out of the Thirty Years' War in the island of Usedom. It goes on as follows. Coffers, chests, and closets were all plundered and broken to pieces, and my surplus also was torn, so that I remained in great distress and tribulation. But my poor little daughter they did not find, seeing that I had hidden her in the stable, which was dark, 
without which I doubt not that they would have made my heart heavy indeed. The lewd dogs would even have been rude to my old maid Ilsa, a woman hard upon fifty, if an old cornet had not forbidden them. Wherefore I give thanks to my Maker when the wild guests were gone, that I had first saved my child from their clutches, although not one dust of flour, not one grain of corn, one morsel of meat even of a finger's length was left. And I knew not how I should any longer support my own life and my poor child's. Item, I thanked God that I had likewise secured the vasa sacra, which I had forthwith buried in the church in front of the altar, in presence of the two churchwardens, Hinrich Seden and Klaus Bulken of Eucritz, commending them to the care of God. And now, because, as I have already said, I was suffering the pangs of hunger, I wrote to his lordship, the sheriff Wittich V. Appleman at Pugla, that, for the love of God and his holy gospel, he should send me that which his highness grace Philippus Julius had allowed me as prestanda from the convent at Pugla. To wit, thirty bushels of barley and twenty-five marks of silver, which, howbeit his lordship had always withheld from me hitherto, for he was a very hard, inhuman man, as he despised the holy gospel and the preaching of the word, and openly, without shame, reviled the servants of God, saying that they were useless feeders, and that Luther had but half cleansed the pigsty of the church, God mend it. But he answered me nothing, and I should have perished for what, if Hinrich Seden had not begged for me in the parish. May God reward the honest fellow for it in eternity. Moreover, he was then growing old, and was sorely plagued by his wicked wife Lizzie Colkin. Methought when I married them that it would not turn out over well, seeing that she was in common report of having long lived in unchastity with Wittich Appleman, who had ever been an arch-rogue, and especially an errant whoremaster, and such the Lord never blesses. This same Satan now brought me five loaves, two sausages, and a goose, which old goodwife Paul at Laudan had given him. Also a flitch of bacon from the farmer Jack Tavert. But he said I must shield him from his wife, who would have had half for herself, and when he denied her she cursed him, and wished him gout in his head, whereupon he straightway felt a pain in his right cheek, and it was quite hard and heavy already. At such shocking news I was affrighted, as became a good pastor, and asked whether peradventure he believed that she stood in evil communication with Satan and could bewitch folks. But he said nothing and shrugged his shoulders. So I sent for old Lizzie to come to me, who was a tall, meagre woman of about sixty, with squinting eyes, so that she could not look anyone in the face. Likewise with quite red hair and indeed her good man had the same. But though I diligently admonished her out of God's word, she made no answer, until at last I said, Wilt thou unbewitch thy goodman? For I saw from the window how that he was raving in the street like a madman. Or wilt thou that I should inform the magistrate of thy deeds? Then, indeed, she gave in, and promised that he should soon be better, and so he was. Moreover, she begged that I would give her some bread and some bacon, inasmuch as it was three days since she had a bit of anything to put between her lips, saving always her tongue. 
So my daughter gave her half a loaf and a piece of bacon about two hands-breaths large. But she did not think it enough, and muttered between her teeth. Whereupon my daughter said, If thou art not content, thou old witch, go thy ways and help thy goodman. See how he has laid his head on Zabel's fence and stamps with his feet for pain. Whereupon she went away, but still kept muttering between her teeth, Yea, forsooth, I will help him, and thee too. End of section 1